0: John Martin Scripps, commonly referred to as the tourist from hell, was an English spree killer with three confirmed victims across Southeast Asia in 1995. Scripps could be responsible for many more murders across the world. This week on Unknown Passage, we look at the criminal career of a tourist killer few have heard of. Sources for this episode include Crime Investigation Asia, The Straits Times, Grunge, The Herald, The San Francisco Gate, and The South China Morning Post. Hey guys, welcome back to a bonus episode this week. I know I left you hanging for a month, so I decided to go ahead and record the next episode early for you guys, and um, I hope that it gives you something to think about or look into as we go into the weekend. So since I dropped the Carla Van Eden episode two days ago, we have three new patrons, Candy, Sammy and Elise. So thank you so much for coming on board, you guys. Everyone can join the Patreon. Um, The website is back up at unknownpassagepodcast.com. It links off that. That's the easiest way to find the Patreon or look for Unknown Passage on the Patreon app. You can join on any tier you like. So in the last two days, since people have listened to the Carla Van Eden case, I've had quite a lot of feedback about what people think. And it's totally split at the moment. Um, Probably half of people think that it's suicide and half think it is a murder. Actually, probably more people think that it's a suicide than a murder. So I'm interested to know what you think. The way that some people have kind of told me why they think it's suicide has made me reevaluate my murder stance as well. <laughs> um, I honestly don't know with that case. And usually on different cases, I have a general idea of what I think happened. So, yes. So, for this bonus episode, this is a Patreon location request. And the reason that I've come back with a bonus episode this week is because when you become a patron, you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode. And when I made that rule, I didn't realize that people would want to join the Patreon. (laughs) I honestly didn't think anyone would join. So every time someone joins, I ask them what their choice is and I add it to the list. And no matter how many episodes a week I do, I constantly have probably 12 to 15 on the list um, because people join, you know, every week. So I'm trying to get... A bit ahead of myself um, with cases. So that's why I'm bringing you a bonus one. And this is one that I have had on my list since I started the podcast. And I shelved him for a time when it would be a good time to talk about him. So, patron Cara, she's from the Bay Area of California. She's awesome. And when I asked her what case she would like, she said, I'm not going to choose a specific case or location um, because you can choose either. She said, just choose something that's solved and something that happened somewhere exotic. So I hope that Southeast Asia and this being a serial killer solved case, you know, scratches your true crime itch, Kara. Now, right before I went to record this, I was just kind of looking on YouTube comments on one particular documentary about this case that I watched. And one person wrote, <laughs> this is the most uninteresting case ever. <laughs> And I thought, fuck, I hope that my listeners don't think that. So I'm sorry if you don't like it. I think it's really interesting. I think it's a really good case that matches with this podcast. Um, I think that it has quite a lot of lessons in it. There's quite a lot of names in the John Martin Scripps story. So I'll try to make it as easy as possible for you to understand. There's a lot of moving pieces. It takes place over a number of countries, one of the first cases we've done where we're going to we're having victims in two countries, at least. Um the main countries for this episode are Singapore and Thailand, two old friends that we've been to before, both of them. And our tale will end in a very familiar place too. so keep that in mind. But potentially, John Martin Scripps was responsible for many more murders across the world, including in the USA and South America, and we'll go through those towards the end when we wrap up. We have only done one serial killer story before. It was what's his name, Stephen? Sorry, I don't have it. He's the guy from South Africa who is a serial killer of sex workers in Alaska. Um, So I thought it was high time to cover the case of The Tourist from Hell, which is a pretty intense title, but it's actually an understatement for John Martin or John Martin Scripps. He was also known as the Garden City Killer because he killed in Singapore and the Garden City is Singapore's nickname. So I thought that the easiest way to tell the story of John Scripps was to kind of start a little bit in the middle. And that will make sense shortly. When I was researching this last week and this week, I thought, how am I going to tell this? So I think this is the easiest way. Now, I do just want to give a shout out to a true crime show. I will link it. It's on YouTube. I'll put it on the Unknown Passage website so you guys can watch the episode if you'd like to. There is a really good show called Crime Investigation UK and Crime Investigation Australia and there's actually a Crime Investigation Asia which covered this case with really good re and it was a really good episode and it gave me a lot of more respect for people involved in the case. I will link it once I push this live but let's go back to 1995. Where were you? It's early 1995. When you travelled, there was no social media, there was no email still. So you really just went on a trip and saw people when you got home. You weren't checking in at various places and people didn't know where you were every moment of your travels. So let's go to Johannesburg, South Africa to begin this tale. It's 1995 and a man called Jared Lowe, he was thirty-two years old, and he was a chemical engineer who worked for South African breweries. According to Wikipedia, which is the only source that has his height, he was five foot seven. He was married to his wife Vanessa, and he had a child. On March seventh, nineteen ninety-five, Jared Lowe flew out of Johannesburg across the Indian Ocean to the Southeast Asian nation of Singapore, which we have been to before for the Van Tuong Nguyen drug trafficking case. His story, which makes sense to me considering it was 1995, was to shop for electronics, something that a lot of people did more. There was more travel, tourism for electronics and things like that before online shopping. He was only due to be gone for about five or six days and he told his wife that he would be back around the 11th or 12th of March. Jared flew into Singapore's Changi Airport, one of the most famous airports in the world, and every year voted the best airport in the world. He flew in on the morning of March 8th, 1995. Seven years later, Van Tuong Nguyen would also fly into this airport trafficking heroin um, and he would be apprehended. But for now, Jared has done nothing wrong. Jared disembarked his flight, and while entering immigration and entering into Singapore, he was approached by a stranger. This man introduced himself as Simon Davis. The man was normal, he was British, he was relatively good looking, just looked like a regular guy, he was chatty, he got along automatically with Jared really well. The men got talking, and before long, Simon Davis asked Jared if he wanted to share a twin room at a hotel in Singapore to save money while they were both there. Jared Lowe readily agreed. There's been a lot of kind of insinuation that he could have been gay, but there's no evidence of that at all. It all seemingly points to the fact that he really just didn't know anyone in Singapore, was only there a few days and thought, hey, this guy seems harmless and let's split the costs. So they caught a taxi to a hotel in the heart of Singapore called the Riverview Hotel, and they checked into room 1511 together. They were both on the um guest log at reception, and then they were not seen again in that hotel or coming out of that room the following morning march 9th, nineteen ninety five Simon Davis approaches the hotel reception. he has a weird request. he asks the receptionist whether Jared Lowe, the South African tourist, could be deleted from the guest log for the room as Simon Davis had kicked him out the previous night. Seemingly, their budding friendship had come to an end pretty quickly. His reasoning, he told the receptionist, was that he quickly realised that Jared Lowe, family man married to a woman, was a homosexual and Simon was not having it. After he had tried something on him, Simon had kicked him out and Jared Lowe had left into the night of a city that he was not familiar with. Now, overshare for a receptionist? Probably. But she did do this task. Simon Davis kept the room with just himself on the log. He did some shopping. He stayed in Singapore. He also used Jared Lowe's credit cards to withdraw $8,000 in cash advances and to buy a video cassette recorder. Very kind of high tech in 1995. We would have got one in my family around that same time. (laughs) He also went to see the Singapore Symphony Orchestra perform on the 10th of March 1995. He had a great time in Singapore, minus the run-in with the weird gay South African, according to him. But Jared had left behind his credit cards, and Simon was just using them. On the 11th of March, Simon Davis was observed at the hotel by hotel security, carrying a heavy suitcase out of the hotel at around 6.35 a.m., He then went somewhere, he returned with the suitcase, without the suitcase, sorry, and he left the hotel for good. He checked out of the hotel, he headed to Singapore Changi Airport, and he boarded a flight the hour or two up to the capital of Thailand, Bangkok. Two days later, on March 13th, a pair of legs that were severed at the knees, so it was the lower legs, were discovered floating in a plastic bag that was kind of torn open. This was off Clifford Pier in Singapore, which is kind of part of the Marina Bay, but the pier doesn't exist anymore. The legs belonged to a Caucasian male and they had been quote unquote disarticulated by someone who seemingly had expert skills in taking apart muscles and things like that with something really sharp. Also around this day, when the legs were discovered, Jared Lowe, the South African tourist, was due to return to South Africa, and his wife was concerned. As she usually heard from him daily, he would call home. Again, this was before email and social media, so you didn't have a whole lot of options. She contacted the Singapore High Commission, and she lodged a missing persons report advising that her husband, Jared was missing in Singapore, which is one of the safest places in the world for tourists and relatively small as well. On March 16th, 1995, three days later, this time a pair of thighs and a torso washed up around the same area of the Marina Bay, also in a plastic bag. And like the legs before them, the parts belonged to a Caucasian, which they thought it was the same man, that the legs had belonged to. So, this kind of narrowed things down because, you know, Singaporeans aren't Caucasians. So, you could narrow it down to an expat or a tourist. By this point, the missing persons report was matched to the body parts. And Jared's wife came out from South Africa to formally identify the remains. The legs, the torso, and the thighs as her husband on the 1st of April 1995. Jared Lowe's arms and head were never found. Once they were able to make this connection, they went to the hotel room that Jared Lowe had um, shared with this Simon Davis. The police officer is interviewed on Crime Investigation Asia. They went into the room expecting to find a bloodbath because by this point they were thinking that maybe Simon Davis knew something and now they didn't know where he was. They went in there was nothing, but there was a really strong smell of decomposition. So the police officer explains that he thought that immediately they'd find a body or find blood, but there was not a drop, not a drop in the bedroom. So they go into the bathroom thinking that the body must have been taken apart in a bath so you could then wash it down with water, not a drop in the bath they're starting to think, what the hell? The cop lies down on the bathroom floor and right there near his head on the ground is a drop of blood, which is about the size of a 20 cent piece. That's how they describe it. So now we're going to go to what Simon Davis did once he left that hotel. So once this British friendly chap that had kicked Jared Lowe out of the hotel, never to be seen again until his body parts washed up in the Marina Bay, once Simon Davis checked out of that hotel on the 11th of March 1995, he travelled up to the Thai capital of Bangkok. He was there until the 15th of March. Um, he flew down from Bangkok after a couple of days down to the very popular Thai island of Phuket. But on the 19th of March, he flew back into Singapore Changi Airport, fresh from his beach break in Thailand. When he disembarked from his flight, he was promptly arrested as they had put Simon Davis, the man who shared a room with Gerard Lowe on a alert list in case he passed through the Singapore Changi Airport. And luckily he had walked right into their trap. Once they apprehended him, they looked through his luggage and in it they found knives, a 1.3 kilogram hammer, a stun gun, handcuffs, a can of mace, credit cards and possessions, and the passport of Jared Lowe. Plus, this time they had two more passports on top of that for two Canadians called Sheila and Darren Demoud. But as yet, they had no idea who these Canadians were. This man, Simon Davis, said his name was indeed Simon Davis. Now, by this stage, the Singaporean authorities had charged him for forgery due to the possession of um Simon, due to the possession of Jared Lowe's passport and for using his credit cards to get cash advances out and things like that. But by the 24th of March 1995, two weeks or so after this fateful interaction between Simon Davis and Jared Lowe in Singapore Changi Airport, he was charged with the murder of South African Jared Lowe. By this point, they had uncovered the real name of this man who was going by Simon Davis, and it was John Martin Scripps. John Martin Scripps was 35 at the time of his arrest at Singapore Changi Airport. Um, He was a career criminal with a checkered history, to say the very least. From a young age, he was basically born to be a criminal. He was born on what some sources say the 9th of November and some say the 9th of December, 1959 in the English town of Letchworth, which is in the county of Hertfordshire, about a 90-minute drive from London. He was incredibly close to his dad. His dad's name was Leonard Scripps. He was a lorry driver, so a truck driver. We've done the Essex lorry deaths before. He was a truck driver in London's East End and his mum, Jean, she was a barmaid or a bartender. The Scripps family was totally blue collar, but from the Crime Investigation Asia episode, you get the feeling that this did not impress John. He always yearned to be one of the upper crust but you know you can't help what you're born into but he didn't seem to understand that he had the option to better himself if he wanted to. He had an older sister as well who doesn't really come into the equation. As I said John was really close to his dad growing up he would often accompany his dad on lorry trips and for work and things like that and from a very young age John showed signs of being a troubled child not a violent one, um, but one that was naughty, that got into kind of misdemeanors or petty crimes from a young age. Now, when he was nine, John Scripps' dad, Leonard, committed suicide. And from there, John, his problems only grew. He had issues in school, which when you read texts that he's written, you get the feeling that he had major issues in school because he's not able to spell at all. um, And he dropped out by the age of 15. He was drawn to petty crime and he was very into robbery and theft. And he would occasionally do odd jobs. So together with odd jobs and the proceeds of his petty crime, that's how he would fund his travels. And from a young age, he seemed to be interested in traveling the world, which he could have turned into a really positive thing. His first Charge came when he was 15 and he had dropped out of school. You would find again and again that at his home in England, he would get the equivalent of slaps on the wrist, which becomes an issue later on when he's an adult who shouldn't be doing it. When he was 15, he was sentenced to a 12-month conditional discharge. So like a suspended sentence, and fined 10 pounds, which was more at the time, (laughs) it was like 1974 at the time, um, by a juvenile court in London for burglary. Because these charges are often not seen as very egregious, and they're not violent, John would often get a slap on the wrist. And this meant that he would become more emboldened to commit more and more crimes. Within a year, he had committed burglary three more times, and he wasn't really fussed with doing time or being arrested. It would just be buying time until he got out again. In June 1978, when he was 18, he was fined £40 for indecent assault. They don't go into detail about this, but this was his first conviction as a legal adult. Then he took his crimes on the road. He would be arrested for robberies in London and then in Israel, where he would do some jail time for robbery. He would kind of disappear and pop up in random places, and no one would even know that he had plans to go to these places or how he would spend his time while he was there. But I don't think he was sightseeing. <laughs> and he would always get off. The way John is described, it's like he's a ghost. Um, One of the journalists who covered this at the time that it was happening, he kind of describes how wherever John was, he would just disappear with no warning. When he was 14, he was in the army cadets for school and they went on a trip to France. And when they got there, he just disappeared. (laughs) He went AWOL. No one knew where he was. And then he just popped back up in England once it was over. In 1980, John met a teenager in Mexico. Her name is Maria. They also got married in 1980 when he was 21 and she was 17, different times back then. And obviously, she's looking for a better life, not just for herself, but for her family because she wasn't from money. She returned to England with him, probably thinking that she had married Prince William, but the reality hit her pretty hard that this fairytale life that he had painted for her was absolute bullshit and that he was a shit absent husband who was constantly in jail. He was infatuated with Maria though, and he was the type that was like, if I can't have you and someone else does, I will ruin your life. When Maria got to England, she very quickly, as I said, realised that it was not all he had cracked it up to be. In 1982, John did his first hard time. This was for burglary and assault in the county of Surrey. It's I've kind of got to explain it, but in England they've got a thing where when you're on the verge of getting out and finishing up your sentence, you have home leave where you can go home for a few days and then you're meant to return to prison. I have a friend who has a brother who is who did this, he was in prison in England. And he was, he worked during the days, they left the prison yards, he went to work and then he would return at night, he would get day leave and home leave for a few days. And I've noticed that it's a very British thing that you wouldn't get anywhere else. But most people returned to the prison after the home leave. But do you think John did? <laughs> No. Um, He had home leave from prison in 1985 for a few days and he took this as his opportunity to go on the run. He could not help himself despite the fact that he was finishing his term in like a month or two. He could have just stuck it out. He burgled again during this and then he was sentenced to another three years on top of that. Now, Maria, his wife, to her credit, despite her young age, she had realized that this guy was a loser. She was done with John. She left him, she met, and she married a police constable named Ken. He was actually a member of the Royal Protection Guard for the royal family. Now, when John found out that she had married a police officer, John's sworn enemy, um, the police... He was incensed. He was enraged. He made their lives a living hell. How dare this woman he found and gave a new life to leave him and marry a fucking cop of all people? He would harass the couple, turn up at their house, threaten them constantly, burgle their house. And he made it his mission that if he wasn't going to have Maria, then he would break them up and destroy their lives. And it worked. This ultimately split Maria and Ken up and she returned home to Mexico. Now, by this stage, John was released from prison and he dropped his surname Scripps legally. So now he was going by his first and middle name, which ended up being John Martin. I really hope wherever Maria is now and she would still be alive, most likely. Um, I hope that she's doing better because she was one of the victims of John Martin scripts. He ripped her life apart from a really young age. His years in prison had not deterred John from re-offending. He was only more emboldened from being around criminals to become a better criminal. Despite Asia having a hardline stance on drugs, which we have talked about extensively with Van Tuong Nguyen and the Barlow and Chambers case, this had been in effect for a very long time. It was even you know, around this time that Barlow and Chambers were executed in Malaysia, so people couldn't say that they did not know. John decided, despite all this, that his next target for crime was Asia, specifically Southeast Asia. He started carrying heroin between Southeast Asia and Europe, and this only lasted a while before in 1987, he was arrested at London Heathrow Airport for possession of drugs. When they arrested him and they frisked him, London police found a safety deposit box key that was for a safety deposit box on Orchard Road, which is a really famous shopping strip that I've been to in Singapore. Communicating with the Singapore authorities, they headed to the safety deposit box, and in it, they found $1 million worth of heroin in the box where John was storing it for safekeeping. This was the first time that John Martin Scripps, or John Martin at the time, would land on Singapore authorities' radar, but it would not be the last. John was sentenced in England for the possession charge of bringing it into Heathrow to He was sentenced to seven years, but again, he was allowed home leave, and again, he would go on the run when he got home leave. In 1992, they added another six years on top of this seven year charge. Technically, that should have kept him in prison until 2001, which, if that had happened and they had stuck to it and realized that he was a flight risk and a threat, what I'm about to go into, including a number of murders just wouldn't have happened. He was sent to prison on the Isle of Wight, which is a island off the south coast of England. You can see it from the city of Portsmouth. And he behaved himself. He was a model prisoner. He did any jobs given to him and he was really good at everything, which seems like you hear that a lot with serial killers. They kind of just, like Bruce Lee said, be like water. He was given the job of prison butcher Other prison butchers taught him the skills of taking an animal apart and disarticulating it. He loved it. He thrived on it, which I think is a red flag for a lot of serial killers um, early on. He loved it so much that when he got out of prison, his plan was to open a butcher's shop. But that did not happen. In 1993, he was sent to another prison, this time in his home county of Hertfordshire, and in october 1994 he was granted home leave again despite the fact that he should have served another 7 years his mum had already contacted the cops and told the cops that he would flee if given home release later she said quote the home office have buried their head in the sand over this they know full well that if they had done what I told them, none of this would have ever happened. I begged them not to let him go, unquote. And if that's your mum saying that, you know, she knows what's going to happen. So John had a friend in prison called Simon Davis. Coincidence. He used to go visit Simon Davis when he would have, you know, when he would be moved and get home release and things like that. Simon Davis just happened to have lost his birth certificate while rooming with John in prison. And John took this birth certificate, obviously. He then used it to get a passport issued under the name Simon Davis with John's picture. Things were really easy to do back then, I think. (laughs) And a month later, he popped up in Mexico on the Simon Davis passport, most likely trying to find his Now, ex wife Maria and ruin her life some more. So, when he got there, he went to the British Embassy and he said that he'd lost his passport under the name Simon Davis. So, it was as easy as that. They printed him a new one and now he had two just for safekeeping. According to the San Francisco Gate, From there, it seems that from Mexico, John Scripps flew up to Los Angeles on March the 2nd, 1995, using the passport of Simon Davis, which was one of his favourites to use. I think he used it probably because the guy that he knew in prison would never really leave England, so he was probably safe that the guy wouldn't flag up trying to get a passport. Scripps then traveled to San Francisco from LA. He opened a bank account at a Citibank under the name John Martin. It was all really straightforward, but these days you can't open a bank account without, you know, showing that you're on like a long-term visa or something like that. It's like catch me if you can stuff, but this guy, he has no class about it. On March 8th, 1995, John flew into Singapore from San Francisco and there in the airport he met South African Jared Lowe and he used the Simon Davis name not only to meet Jared but to check in with him to the Riverview Hotel. So you see I've taken you full circle. Once inside the room, very quickly he used a stun gun to Basically paralyzed poor Jared Lowe. And while Jared Lowe lay there, probably knowing what was going on, he bludgeoned him to death with a hammer that weighed one point three kilograms. He then dragged him into the shower that was over the bath. He dismembered him like he had the animals in the butchery at the prison on the Isle of Wight. He then one by one took his body parts in bags down to by the PR and threw them into the marina bay as i said earlier he then went back to the hotel he checked out and he flew to bangkok thailand sheila damood was 50 in march 1995 she had a son darren who was 23 they came from british columbia canada Sheila worked in an administrative role at a school and Darren was a college student and I saw a comment on the documentary on YouTube from someone that said they knew at the time Darren's fiance so it seems like he either had a long-term relationship that he was in or he was engaged to be married but there's one photo of them and they just look like a really warm mother-son unit. Now, Darren was already in Southeast Asia for spring break in March 1995. And Sheila decided that after this long winter that Canada had just come out of, that she, once Darren was done with his spring break trip with his mates, she would fly over and meet him in Bangkok and they would fly down to Phuket for like a mother-son bonding week in the sun. And I'm sure she was really looking forward to it. So they met up in Bangkok at the airport and they flew the one-hour flight down to Phuket on March 15. As fate would have it, sitting in their row was a lovely British chap called John Martin, They started chatting with him and upon landing they still hadn't organised their accommodation so someone recommended a place called Nelly's Marina Inn and they both decided or all of them decided to check in to the inn which was positioned on the famous Patong Beach in Phuket. John Martin ended up being in room 48 and the Demoods, Sheila and Darren were in the room adjacent to 48 which was 43. The next morning, the Damoods ate breakfast at the hotel at around 11 o'clock, and then they were not seen again. Not long after that, John Martin approached the reception desk. He had another interesting question for reception, much like he had in the hotel in Singapore. This time he asked the inn's receptionist if he could switch his room to room 43 instead, which was the one that the Damoods were in. He told the receptionist that the Demoods had left. They were not staying there anymore, despite never officially checking out with the reception. He said that he would pay their bill because they had never paid an outstanding bill for their one night stay there. And seemingly, this was all okay. No one asked any questions and he was allowed to do this. On the 19th of March, he then checked out of this inn. He went to Phuket airport, and he flew down to Singapore Changi airport again. And this is when he was apprehended. So you can see I've kind of filled in the gaps of what he was doing when he flew up for that couple of days to Thailand. The same day in Phuket that he flew back into Singapore, the skulls of Sheila and Darren Damud were found in a disused mine in a district that was a district of Phuket that was quite a distance from the inn that they were staying in. Five days after that, a torso and a pair of arms and legs were found along a deserted road about 9.7 kilometres or six miles away from where the skulls were found. The body parts were all incredibly badly decomposed. It's really warm and humid in that part of the world. The Thai police had to use dental records to identify the skulls as Sheila and Darren And Forensic analysis had to be done on the legs, arms and torso. They ended up kind of surmising that these body parts were Sheila's, which means that the other parts of Darren's body have never been found and are somewhere on Phuket. Once John Scripps was apprehended at Singapore Changi Airport, which is the last place in that part of the world you would want to be apprehended, um, as you'll all know about their hardline stance on murder, drugs, anything, um, everything results in the death penalty. John Scripps tried to kill himself. He smashed a glass panel in the interview room and tried to cut his wrists. The triple murderer who had killed people in such an ice cold fashion, pretending to be their friend on holidays and then killing them in a horrible way where they knew in the last seconds of their life what was going on, he was now scared of dying. Two days before his arrest, a Filipino woman in her 40s had been hung for a double murder in Singapore, and John knew that he was fucked when it came to what was going to happen. I've actually added this woman's case to the list to do at some point because I found it very interesting. When they searched him, they found out that John had five passports on him. He had the two passports in the name of Simon Davis. He had Sheila and Darren DeMude's passport. And he had a South African passport that was Jared Lowe's. So he could have travelled on really any of them, but each of the passports instead had John Scripps's photo affixed. It was that easy. <laughs> initially, to keep him there because it was a race against the clock to get a charge to keep him in custody, otherwise, he would be gone forever. John Scripps was initially charged with forgery. Ultimately, they were able to charge him with the murder of Jared Lowe, as that is the one that happened in Singapore. The Singaporeans were not fucking around. They even charged him for the vandalism of the glass shard that he then tried to cut his wrists with. They did not give a shit. They laid everything on him. There's all kinds of stuff. John claimed that He went back to the story that he'd told the hotel receptionist at the Riverview Hotel in Singapore that Jared was gay, that he had made a move on him, and that it was self defense. Not self defense in like a gay panic defense from the 90s, more like John's story was that during the night, Jared Lowe had made a move on him. John had told him where to go and then he said Jared Lowe start started attacking him with the hammer that John had in his luggage. He yes, he flew into all of these places with a stun gun, a hammer, a knife, all of these things because it was pre-9/11. He said that Jared was attacking him with this hammer and then John got hold of the hammer and was able to kill him and that was his story. Despite there being no evidence that Jared was gay or that any of this had happened. And if that had happened, Why did you take his body apart? Why wouldn't you just call the police and explain what happened? But then again, it is Singapore and, I mean, no matter what your story is, they're probably going to try to nail you and get the death penalty. Now, this is where he brings in this mysterious third person into the equation, which is often talked about. When the police asked him how he got Jared Lowe's body out of the hotel and managed to throw it into the river... John Martin Scripps claimed that there was a friend who helped him to dispose of the body. He said, quote, I'm not sure what the next thing I did. Everything was a blur to me after this incident that I was walking around in a dream world for the next few days. He refused to identify whoever the friend was. He said, quote, I cannot tell you his identity because if he knew he would harm my family back in Britain, unquote. So he brings this third person into it who helped him, but we know that he took Jared Lowe's body apart, so he didn't necessarily need help. We also never saw a third person when security saw John leaving the Singapore hotel with a really heavy suitcase. He also brings his mate into the story in Phuket, Thailand. He said he never met the Damoods. He never never had a run-in with them. It was not him at the inn with them. It was not him meeting them on the plane. He said his friend had given him the Damoods passports and he'd never heard of them before. He just took the passports. Now, we know this is all shit and we know all of this was John Scripps the entire time. Singapore, which we talked about on the Van Tuong Nguyen case, has a bench trial, not a jury one. They got rid of that quite a long time ago. And thankfully, the judge was not buying John's shit either. And for the first time ever, John Scripps got the sentence that he deserved. He was found guilty of Jared Lowe's murder in Singapore, and he was sentenced to death by hanging, which is standard for murder and drugs offences. Unfortunately, because Sheila and Darren Demood were killed in Thailand, they couldn't charge him for that as well. But I was really happy to read the Singapore judge's ruling that he handed down where he did mention them in his rulings and indicated that it was clear that he had killed them as well. His ruling finished with, quote, the sentence of this court upon you is that you will be taken from this place to a lawful prison and taken to a place to be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may Lord have mercy on your soul, unquote. This all happened in the same year that he was caught. He was executed in 1996. So Singapore does not mess around, which you probably are aware of. John did not bother with the appeal that he was legally allowed to have in early 1996. He knew he was toast, I think, and I honestly think he just wanted it to be over. He didn't petition for clemency from the president of Singapore, which is the last ditch attempt that you get. He said that he just wanted to get it over with. John wrote a lot in prison. It was all poor me, self-indulgent shit, nobody loved me, yada, yada, yada. He wrote about how he thought about killing himself before the state of Singapore could do it, but he didn't. His mum then started deflecting as well. Seems like it's genetic. She blamed the prison system in England for creating the monster that was her son. Neither of them took any responsibility for what John Scripps did. At dawn on the 19th of April 1996, just 13 months after he had been arrested at Singapore Changi Airport, John Scripps was allowed a last meal. He chose pizza and hot chocolate in Changi Prison, which sounds terrible, hot chocolate in Singapore when it's about 100% humidity and 35 degrees. We have been to this stage before of someone's story with Van Nuen. and in 1986 with Barlow and Chambers, but that was in Malaysia. John Scripps walked the same walk that Van Nuen did in Singapore Changi Prison to his death, albeit Van walked that walk about nine years later. John was 36. He was hanged to death alongside two drug traffickers who had also been sentenced to death. On that day, the Royal Thai Police closed their files on Sheila and Darren DeMood's murders, saying that it was essentially solved and that justice had been brought to John Scripps. and so did the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on their side because Sheila and Darren were Canadian. Maria, the ex-wife of long-suffering ex-wife of John Scripps, heard that he had been hanged from her home in Mexico and she was really shocked. She said, quote, John disappeared on several trips and went to the United States and Southeast Asia. I knew something awful was happening and I could not believe he had started killing people. I knew this would happen to John, but I didn't know it would hurt so much. The last memory I have of him is a message he sent promising we would meet in the next life and that he would never let me go again, unquote. So it seems like he still had her, like, controlled all these years later from his cell in Changi Prison. But John's life wasn't totally in vain. He made history. He was the first Briton to be executed in Singapore since the nation gained its independence from Britain in 1959. He was also one of the first Europeans to receive the death penalty in Singapore. So, well done. We did Barlow and Chambers way back on this podcast, and they were the first Westerners ever to be hanged in Malaysia in 1986. But don't think the episode's over just because three murders were solved and John Scripps was responsible. He's actually suspected in a lot more murders, and I have a few to talk about, but I do know for a fact that there's a number that aren't publicly talked about. Um, and they're all over the world. He's kind of like Charles Subrage, um, but Charles Sobrage had way more charisma than John Scripps. Um, yeah. Scripps is suspected in the murders of two men from London separately. One was called Timothy McDowell and one was called William Shackle. McDowell was 28 and I tried to find more information on him, but he's really just a footnote in articles about John Scripps. He was 28 and he was on holidays in Central America in the country of Belize, which we will go to at some point on this podcast, when he vanished. He's never been seen again. Now, John, in a conversation with Maria, the wife, had once told her in passing that he had gone scuba diving with Timothy McDowell in Belize in early 1995, and it appears like he probably was down there. Now, if you think that's a bit of a loose story um, and you can't really tie it to John Scripps, there's a little bit more. After Timothy McDowell vanished, £21,000 was transferred from his bank account to a San, Frans- San Francisco Citibank bank account under the name John Martin. Yep. They believe that he was murdered as he slept and his body was fed to crocodiles somewhere very swampy. Parts of a body were found but they were not able to be identified conclusively as belonging to Timothy McDowell. William Shackle was 24. He was down in Cancun, Mexico which is not very far from where John Scripps' wife Maria is from. Police reports say that John Martin Scripps was also in Cancun around the same time, and after William Shackle disappeared, someone cashed traveller's cheques in his name to the amount of 4,000 British pounds. Yep. It was not long, it was only a couple of days after that, that John Martin flew up to San Francisco, opened that bank account, and then flew across to Singapore. In San Francisco, John Scripps's name is also kind of tossed around in relation to the murder of a sex worker. He's a male called Tom Winger. There's probably the most that you can find about him online. He was murdered on the 28th of March 1994, which is around a year before John Scripps did what he did in Southeast Asia. Tom Winger's body was found chopped up into pieces um, in a dumpster in the Polk Street neighbourhood of San Francisco and they've never been able to conclusively say whether it was John Scripps but he was seen in the hours before he was murdered in the company of a man whose facial composite sketch that people came forward and kind of described him. Apparently, it looks exactly like John Martin Scripps, but then again, he's got quite a generic look and I will put up pictures of him. He has been formally eliminated as a suspect, but I read a number of kind of remarks, probably from a decade ago, from Tom Winger's family saying that there probably wasn't enough to say that John Scripps did it. Tom Wenger, his brother, was quoted in one and he said something along the lines of, oh, it seems like John Scripps' money was his motivation um, and my brother was poor, so there's no way. Um, And that kind of makes sense. Police kind of ruled him out because they believed that he was living in a halfway house for British expats in San Francisco around 1994. He got around He was also investigated for another murder that hasn't been named publicly in Arizona as well. For me, John Scripps, I find it interesting in the sense of law and order. This is a case for me where the British authorities, much like happens in Australia and continues to happen, where people get slaps on the wrist, and then this emboldens them to do more and more messed up stuff um, the British authorities failed even when John Scripps's mother said that he was going to go on the run and that this was going to happen. And ultimately, it was the Singaporean police with their hardline stance and their amazing communications with Scotland Yard, communicating with Thailand, communicating with the United States of cleaning up the mess that the British parole board really created. He really was the tourist from hell, but I think that's too nice and too quirky a kind of name for him. John Scripps was on a tear in early 1995. It seemed that he was determined to go down and to see how long he could get away with murdering people all over the place for and spending their money. I honestly don't get the feeling that money was the motivation. I think that was just another perk. And I do find it interesting that he only targeted men. Um, Even though Sheila was a victim, I think he had actually started to talk to her son Darren as Darren waited for Sheila at Bangkok airport to arrive. So it seemed like Darren was more the initial target. So I don't know if he found men more of a challenge or he targeted men he thought would have money or as the Singaporean police floated at one point, maybe he was gay because when they put out like an all points bulletin looking for him at the time that he was Simon Davis they described him as a homosexual so they actually didn't you know ever believe his story that Jared Lowe was the gay guy they actually kind of very early on believed that John Scripps was the predator um I don't know, he probably just thought a woman wouldn't allow him to get in a cab with her on holidays or get that chatty. Um, It would be too hard to kind of maneuver a woman, but a man stands more kind of an opportunity. But yeah, he, I believe he flew back into Singapore that second time because he knew that he would be caught and that it would be Singapore that would be the ones to execute him. And maybe he was doing everyone a favour by getting caught, not appealing, not asking for clemency. He was kind of like a self-loathing serial killer. And in that sense, I find him really interesting. So I hope that you've enjoyed this case. It was something a little bit different. Um, Kara, thank you for requesting somewhere exotic. I hope Singapore and Thailand are. Um, We've been there a million times, and I just wanted to find one for your bonus episode this week that was familiar to us all. I will be back in a week this time. I have quite a lot of patron location requests, so Stephanie, bear with me. I've got an interview coming up for yours. Marissa, I'm still going. Amanda, Aaron, Tracy, (laughs) Sophia, Vicky, Hope, Jamie, Alexis, Letitia, Rochelle, Nate, Jess B, Candy, Sammy, Elise. Um, so this will take us into the new year. I hope that you all have a great weekend and I will be back next week. Join the Patreon. Um, one off donation to the podcast. The PayPal is unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. The website is back up, it's unknownpassagepodcast.com. There you can find episode guides, travel facts. Um, I'm working on a number of exciting things. So thanks so much, and I'll talk to you then.